I'll just go ahead and give you fair warning. Hopefully you've had good breakfast and enough coffee to get through it. Um, so this past week, we, we all witnessed on TV our capital being breached for the first time since 1814. In 1814, the British came and put a nice fire to it. Um, but since then, it's never happened. And I imagine you, like most people, as you watch that unfold on TV, it, it's jarring. It, it's unnerving. And it's kind of a nightcap to a year plus of politics and politicians, uh, pandemics, not meaning a bunch of peas, but they just happen to be that way, pandemics, this rising fear in our nation among people and this rising anger in our nation among people. And we watch and we're jarred and we watch and we're trying to make sense of these events and we watch and like, what is happening? And I would say that as we look out over the events of the last year and change, we are looking at what it looks like for God to be increasingly placing us under his path of judgment. And I don't think that has anything to do with elections or anything to do with politics. I think elections and politics and the people and all, they are just symptoms that we see of what I would say is a pervasive spiritual rot within our country that crosses every swath of our country, every economic status of our country, every corner of our country. There is this pervasive spiritual rot. We have walked away from God. And why does it surprise us that our nation boils over with all the symptoms of that? And I say that because it's current, but I also say that because it's the perfect backdrop for the passage that we're talking about today. And I say it's the perfect backdrop because I believe the three questions we're going to ask today will be forced on everyone in this room. I believe the three questions we're going to ask and attempt to answer from the text today will be forced on every Christian in this nation and and in this world in the coming days. And not only will you be forced to answer it, the way you answer these questions will determine the gospel's movement and impact in this generation and beyond. The way you answer these questions today will determine the gospel's movement and the gospel's impact on your generation, on our generation, and on the generations to come. And so we've been looking at, as we started out 2021, we've been looking in a fresh year to refresh our vision. To refresh the vision that that I believe you should embrace for your Christian life. to To refresh the vision that I believe you should have for your family, that you should have for your groups, you should have for your ministry areas. And to refresh the vision that God has given us as a church. Not the building of Fletcher, but you, the people. And so a couple of weeks ago, we started that out together, right? We desire to see the glory of God enjoyed and spread from here to the ends of the earth. That was the, the box top of the puzzle, right? That God's finished picture that we get to check ourselves against. God's finished picture that we're walking towards and painting with our lives and painting with our groups and painting with the church. That he is meant to be enjoyed, and if we enjoy him, we'll spread him. We are pleasure seekers, and if we will find our pleasure in him, because in his presence is the fullness of joy, everything in our life will revolve around that. And then the way we assemble the puzzle, our mission by making reproducing disciples. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples, who are marked by three key characteristics that we've defined. Uh, This is the one with that. That they treasure Christ supremely. 
that the operating system of our life is the greatest delight in God and the greatest treasure placed on Christ, and everything else operates and flows out of those defining principles. And if you treasure Christ, then you will yearn for the people around you that don't know him to know him. And you will serve them and you will love them with the gospel and you will love them enough to speak the gospel. Word and deed. And that you won't just go out to them because you love Jesus. You'll go in deeper with each other to intentionally foster genuine relationships of growth and change. And so the, the box top that Jesus is pa- or that God is painting in the world is that uh, uh, people that are together who live for His glory and love and enjoy His glory. And then the way we're assembling it is by, by making disciples who make disciples. Then last week, Micah had this great challenge for us that if you are reconciled by the work of Jesus, then with inescapable privilege and responsibility, you are a reconciler of other people. If you have been reconciled, you are a reconciler. Now today we're going to ask three questions. Three questions that I think are, I think are super timely, but three questions that would always be timely because there are three essential questions that if this vision and this mission is going to move from words on the back of your bulletin into your life and beyond your life, these three questions have to be answered. Are we willing to suffer for it? I believe that will be asked of us in the coming days, years, whatever God ordains. Are we willing to suffer and are we willing to sacrifice for that to become a reality? For a greater joy in God and a greater treasure of Jesus? The second question, will we believe this book that God has written? Will we believe it? Will we saturate our lives in it? Will we... Will we dive into it like we believe it? And will we hold convictionally to it like we believe it? I think you're going to have to answer that question in the coming days, months, years, whatever God ordains. And then the last question, are we willing to roll up our sleeves and go to work for it? Are we willing to roll up our sleeves and go to work for it? A guy named Henry Ford, I'm sure other people made cars. A guy named Henry Ford had this great idea. Motorized vehicle. What a great idea. What would happen if he never went to work? He wouldn't be driving around. He may be driving around now. He wouldn't be driving around in his, right? Great ideas require hard work to become reality. A great vision requires hard work to become reality. Grace-driven hard work. So let's read it. Uh, We'll be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints, to them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Let's pray. Father, 
please let us not just sing all the glory is yours. Please don't just let us sing that you are worthy of more. Please don't let us just say with our mouths that Jesus is the song of our lives. Make it so. Make it real. Make it true. Start with me, Father. Start with us, Father. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So key questions to pursuing our vision and mission. Key questions to pursuing our vision and mission. First, are we willing to pay the price for the expansion of Christ's church? Are we willing to pay the price for the expansion of Christ's church? And so, um, a guy meets a girl. And they start dating. And they start figuring out if, they're, if, if, if God's in this. And they start figuring out, are they compatible? And they fall in love. And then this broke college student or broke young professional goes into a jewelry store to look at these shiny rocks for one or two or three or five or seven or ten thousand dollars that they don't have. And they start saving away. Or they pull out a credit card, you know, whatever. What would possess some broke dude to go buy a shiny rock? She's worth it. And if she's worth it, the cost really doesn't matter. If she's worth it, you don't even feel the cost or care about the cost. Why on earth would you give your life to make Jesus known? Why on earth would you suffer opposition from the people you go to school with? Why would you face rejection from their groups? Why would you face the cost of whatever it is, your job or your reputation? Why on earth would you do that? Because he is worth it. And because his work in the lives of the people around you is worth it. And his work forming his church is worth it. That's why you would do it. That's why we must do it. And so why, how can we answer the question without even thinking about the cost? If he's worth it, the cost doesn't matter. And the more he's worth, the more cost we can pay and it not even matter. And so... You may think, well, expanding Christ's church, well, you know, I don't want to give my life for Fletcher to get bigger because that's the way we think about it, isn't it? I don't, I don't want to give my life for this thing called the church. Man, the church is a mess. Unless the church is what God says it is. You being built together like living stones into a dwelling place of God by the, in the Spirit. Unless every single person who comes to faith in Christ is a new stone in a bigger and more beautiful temple for God's glory to dwell right in the middle of it. And if it's worth that, or if it's that, it might just be worth your life. It might just be worth your life. Let's jump into it. The text It says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. If you played any sports growing up, or at least if you're a certain age and have played sports growing up, you had a coach say some version of this statement. No pain, no gain. I think that's what Paul's saying here. What are they saying? They're like, they're using this statement, no pain, no gain. Keep pushing, dig deeper, lift more. For us, it was like, you can get through these two a days because no pain, no gain. Keep, keep lifting, get stronger, wake up earlier, go you know, running and get into your, your conditioning. Why? No pain, no gain. Because the, the gain of winning, the gain of the team growing, the game of, uh, or, or, or the gain of, champion, of being a champion, it's worth it. It's worth the cost you're paying right now today. 
And I think that's exactly what Paul is saying. The gain of Jesus for you. Right? I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Right? I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. What is he saying? He's saying the gain of Jesus' work among the Colossians and the gain of Jesus' work among the Gentiles is so precious, so beautiful, so valuable, so good, so worth it that the pain of suffering isn't even felt. And so what is the dominant theme in your heart and your mind when you think about that? Is it the cost? Is it the suffering? Is it the potential rejection? Or is it the joy of Jesus' work? And whatever theme dominates your vision will determine whether you go sacrifice to live it out because he's worth it. Or whether the suffering and the loss dominates your vision. And we'll just do the good Christian thing and we'll just kind of stay hidden. Are you willing to pay the price for Jesus' work in people called the church? And so now I rejoice in my sufferings. Are we willing to pay the price to see Jesus work in the lives of the people around us? Are we willing to pay the price for Jesus to be known in your classes? Are we willing to pay the price for Jesus to be known where you work? Are we willing to suffer for Jesus to be known in our neighborhoods and the teams that our our kids play on? Are we willing to pay the price? Because... We will have hardship. We will face suffering. Paul did. He he is not theorizing about suffering. Paul, from the beginning of his ministry until he died a martyr's death, suffered. He was humiliated. He was stoned. He was mocked. He was beaten with rods. He was rejected by his people. He was rejected and hated within the churches he planted. He had to write four letters to the Corinthian church because so many of them had turned on him. My life's work for the church and they hate me. And yet I rejoice because Jesus is working in the lives of people. Are you willing to suffer for that reality? Is he worth it? And then Paul makes one of these statements. It's like, Paul, please, could you just make these statements a little easier on us? We're not all as smart as you. So in my body, I fill up, am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. What? What do you mean, Paul? So a couple of statements to try to get to what he means. First, he does not mean that, that, that he is filling up Christ's redemptive suffering. Meaning he does not, he, he does not mean that, that Jesus didn't quite finish it and he's carrying out the rest of the deal. Right? When Jesus is on the cross, stretched out, cries out, it is finished, guess what? It's finished. The price of sin is paid. The cost of redemption paid. The offer of life is now here. He who knew no sin has now taken sin fully. And he who can offer now the righteousness of God is offering it. It's finished. And so he doesn't mean that. The second statement I would say is Christ so identifies with his people that when they suffer, it is called his suffering. Jesus so identifies with you that when you suffer, it's his suffering. And so in Matthew, he's having a conversation at Judgment Day, and he's, he's condemning a group of people and saying, I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was in prison and you didn't visit. And they're like, Lord, what are you talking about? We never saw that. 
And then he blesses this other group, and he says, I was naked, and you clothed me. I was hungry, and you fed me, and I was in prison, and you visited me. Lord, what are you talking about? We never did that. He says, as you did to the least of these, so you did to me. What is he saying? The way you treated them is the way you treated me. And when he talks about this in this passage, the way you, his people's suffering, he so identifies with it that their sufferings are called his. And then the third statement I would make, the sufferings of Jesus are totally sufficient for the world, but the sufferings of Jesus have not yet been proclaimed and applied to the whole world. The sufferings of Jesus are completely sufficient for the entire world, but the sufferings of Jesus have not yet been proclaimed and applied to the entire world. And with that, I would now answer, this is how Chris interprets this passage, um, So I am filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What is Paul saying? I am suffering today for the gospel to move, which is Jesus' sufferings, right? Because my sufferings, he identifies as his own. So I am suffering today for the gospel to move so that the sufferings of Jesus are offered in a genuine way to the entire world. So how is he filling up the afflictions of Christ? He is living a life of suffering for the suffering of Jesus to make it to new and more people and new and more people. So I'm filling up the afflictions of Christ by offering the afflictions of Christ to the nations who haven't heard it yet, to the people who haven't heard it yet. And he's willing to rejoice in being beaten if that gospel goes to one more soul. He's willing to rejoice at shipwrecks if that gospel goes to one new island. He's willing to rejoice in the afflictions of a church hating him if one more church is started filled with people who love Jesus. So I'm filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of, the afflictions of Jesus. And then look at this, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I'm suffering for this thing that we treat so lightly called the church. I rejoice in in my sufferings, and I am suffering for the extension of this thing we can take or leave called the church. This thing that I can jump around called the church. This thing that, you know, honestly, if we really thought about it, it's just not as big a deal as we've got the gospel, we've got Jesus. This, This church thing is secondary. And yet, he rejoices because of his sufferings because his sufferings are forming this thing called the church. And he loves this thing called the church. And so what is it going to take for the, for the church to thrive? What is it going to take for the church to thrive, to expand? It's going to take us paying the price to take the message of Jesus to people who have not, in a genuine way, to people who have not encountered the message of Jesus. And many of those people that you take that message to don't want it. They don't want to hear it. They don't like it. They don't want anything to do with it. It's repulsive to them until it becomes beautiful to them because the Spirit opens their eyes and their heart when they hear it. What is it going to take for the church to thrive? It's going to take us suffering to walk into the lives of the people around us, sacrificing to walk into the lives of people around us that do know Jesus, to see them grow up into the fullness of what Jesus would have for them. Are you willing to suffer, are you willing to pay the price? Someone will pay the price for our evangelism and our discipleship. Someone will pay the price for our evangelism or discipleship. The question becomes who? 
Will I pay the price of my comfort, my rest, my time, my me time? Will I pay the price of rejection or or opposition so that the lost can hear the gospel? Or will they pay the price of eternity without God because nobody offered them in genuine ways the opportunity to turn and believe in Jesus? And they may reject anyways, and they may spend eternity apart from God anyways. But it wasn't because we weren't willing to pay the price. Let's look at the second question. The second question, are we committed to the word that centers on Jesus? Are we committed to the word that centers on Jesus? We have a word from God. And yet, there are branches of the church that are like, but we, to grow, and we, to reach new people, we need to make that word relevant. And by that, they don't mean understandable. By that, they mean we need to modernize the word just a little bit. But we have a word from God. And then there's branches of the church that that have become a little more liberalized or or, or compromised, not politically, but uh, theologically. And, And we've got this word from God, and they're like, oh, but... You've got to take some of that word out because he did, they, they didn't understand biology and they didn't understand, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the design of sexuality. They didn't understand that, that some people were born this way and they didn't understand the morals that a, a modern culture could adjust. And so oh, we just need to take some of that stuff out. It's outdated. But we have a word from God. We have a word from God, and there's a culture that wants to... Our politicians want to sit in Congress and tell us, you know how Jesus would think about this? No, you don't know how Jesus would think about this because you don't know him. So don't lecture me about what Jesus thinks because you are so far from Jesus in your life and so far from Jesus in your speech that you just need to be quiet about him. Sorry. All of them. All of them, right? Like, don't tell me about it, but we have this whole culture out there that has rejected God, rejected his ways, rejected his word, and, and they're telling us what we should think about this book right here. But we have a word from God. And I don't mean this ugly. This is God's words, not mine. God says if you are outside of a saving relationship with Jesus, you are an enemy of God. Why on earth would I let an enemy of God... Tell me what I should say about God. Why would I do that? Why would I change God's word to accommodate an enemy? Especially if this is true. That this is the only book that makes enemies sons. It's the only book that makes dead enemies live. And if we give up this book, we give up our power. And if we give up this book, we give up our lives. And if we give up this book, we give up the only hope that the eternal human souls that you encounter on a daily basis will ever have. We have a word from God. So don't be obnoxious. Like, let's don't, let's don't be the offense. But let's do be convictional. And let's do be winsome. And let's do be humble. And let's, let's saturate our lives with this book like it's really a word from God. And then let's cling to this book in the face of opposition like it's really a word from God. Are we committed to this book, a word that centers on Jesus? Let's look at it. So Paul transitions from the, from the, uh, the sufferings, the mission that it's going to take to extend the gospel, to his, his role as a minister, and to his role of making the word known, and to what this word is. 
And so he says, of this I became a minister. Of this church I became a minister. Now the word minister here is servant. No title, no status, no no like, oh, that could be a church office. No, this is servant, low servant. I became this low servant of this thing called the church. In verse 23, right before the ones we just read, the gospel, you have heard it and it's been proclaimed, of which I was made, same word, a minister, a lowly servant. And so Paul is a servant of the gospel. Not over it, no status attached to it. He serves the gospel. And Paul has been made a servant by God of the church. And he says it's a stewardship. The word stewardship means to manage a household. The word stewardship means that I've been entrusted to manage well what belongs to another. I have been entrusted to manage well something that belongs to another. And so what is Paul saying? I have been entrusted with the gospel. It's not my gospel. To manage it well and faithfully on behalf of God. And then I've been entrusted a portion of the church, the church that I have influence over, to manage it well on behalf of God. And so you're not Paul and I'm not Paul. I'm not an apostle. You're not an apostle. But you have been entrusted a gospel. How do I know you've been entrusted with it? Because if you sit here as someone who has been saved by it, then you sit here with someone who's been entrusted with it. And it's not yours, but you've been entrusted to manage it well. To make sure it doesn't stop with you. And no, it's not your church, and no, it's not my church, and no, it's not the deacon church. It's Jesus' church, but he's given it to us. And whatever part we play in it, and whatever part we have influence over within it, we've been entrusted to manage well on behalf of Jesus. And that's not a light responsibility. It's beautiful. And then what is Paul? He then, he then, what is his stewardship? How does he direct that? To make the word of God more fully known. Right? I have this, this, this weight on me to make the word of God fully known. And I believe that has two branches of meaning attached to it. One, he's speaking to a Gentile church that does not have an Old Testament background. They do not know the, the Old Testament or, at all. And th- there is no New Testament yet, right? There's the apostles teaching and there's a couple of scattered letters. And so branch one of meaning, what I think he's saying is to make the word fully known, is I'm going to take the Old Testament and I'm going to connect it to the work of Jesus because the Old Testament is incomplete revelation until you connect it to the work of Jesus. So I'm going to to make sure you understand the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, and how it applies and connects and fills out the work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to make the word fully known. But there's a second branch of meaning that I believe it has. In Ephesians chapter 20, Paul is, is headed towards Jerusalem in his ultimate death. And he knows that. It's been prophesied in every town he goes to. So he assembles. He doesn't have time to go visit the church. So he assembles all the elders of the Ephesian church to give them a closing message. And, and he says to them, one of the statements he makes to them, I am innocent of the blood of all men. Meaning, I have no blood on my hands for what you do, what the church does, and what the lost around you do. Why? Because I have not failed to share with you the whole counsel of God. If it was hard, I gave it to you. If it was difficult to understand, I gave it to you. If it was something you didn't like, I gave it to you. If it was something you did like, I gave it to you. There was not one part of the revelation of God that I refused to offer to you. And that makes me innocent. What you do with it is for you. What I'm responsible for is that I give it. And so when he says, I want to make the word fully known, there's nothing about God's word that I've held back from you. That I've had an opportunity to share with you. I've made it fully known. Now one of the reasons I do think it's attaching the Old Testament and New Testament together is the next phrase there. 
the mystery, right? He says, the mystery hidden from ages and generations. Well, the simplest way, just, just to keep it simple here, you can dive into it more if you'd like. The simplest way to understand mystery is this. Something that was hidden in the Old Testament, it was there, but it wasn't understood, it wasn't clear, and it wasn't fleshed out. So something that was hidden in the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament or in Christ, it has, been, it has appeared, it's been revealed, it's now clear, it's now fleshed out, fleshed out. So something hidden in the Old Testament, now clear in the New Testament, clear in the work of Jesus Christ, right? And so this mystery... This word of God fully known, this mystery, this old that's now been revealed in the new, this mystery. And then look at how he describes it. It's been hidden from ages and generations. It's been revealed to you, his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great are the riches of the glory of this mystery. The next chapter over, as he, as he continues this in chapter 2, he's going to talk about the riches of this. And he's going to be talking about in him, in Jesus, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Like this is value language. This is treasure language. It's rich, this mystery. And so what is the mystery, right? I want to make the word of God fully known. And the word of God has one central point to it, the mystery. What's the mystery, Paul? You know the privilege that God chose to reveal to you this book? That's what he says. Like God chose to make this known to you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Center of the word is the mystery, the center of the mystery. What's the mystery about? It's about Christ in you. It's about Christ indwelling you, individual believer, saving you, individual believer, securing you, individual believer, operating and living his life inside of you, individual believer, But I don't think it means just that. Christ in you, church. Christ working in you, church. Unifying you, church. Securing you, church. Working through and living his life through you, church. What's the mystery? Christ is in you, saving you and and making you. Christ is in us, saving us and making us. And that's our hope. That's our guarantee of all the glorious eternity that God has promised to us. That's the word he's offered. That's the word he's talking about in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. The mystery, he continues this language, the mystery which is Christ. In Romans 16, the, the mystery is the gospel which is the preaching of Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 3, that Gentiles are fellow heirs through the work of Jesus. This is the mystery. This is what, what was there, but we didn't get it in the Old Testament, but now we get it. And it centers on the person of Jesus Christ. It doesn't center on law. It doesn't center on principles. It doesn't center on uh, uh, steps to take. It doesn't center on spiritual disciplines. It centers on the person of Jesus Christ. And the fact that he is in you is your hope of eternity. The fact that he's among us is our hope of eternity. We have a word from God. We have a word from God that centers on the salvation of his son. What are we going to do with it? Do you believe this book? And that's not a let me answer it in church question. That's a let me answer it with my life question. Do you you believe this book? Are you committed to this book? 
Are you committed to this book because you are going to increasingly face calls of how phobic it is and how whatever it is and how outdated it is and how hateful it is? And they will not see that it is beautiful and they will not see that it is life and they will not see that it is hope. They'll call it every other name and so are you committed to this book? Unless we attempt to answer that question for culture instead of ourselves, are you saturated with this book? I don't want you to be a defender of this book in culture. I want you to be a lover of this book with your whole heart. Are we committed to the word that centers on Jesus Christ, that centers on him? You're going to have to answer that question. That question will be opposed. That question will come with a cost, whatever level of cost that is for you. Are you committed to it? And then the last question, are we willing to labor to see Christ formed in in the people around us and around the world? Are we willing to labor to see Christ formed in the people around us and the people around the world? Have you ever had this thought? I'm not saying I have, no confessions. My job would be great if it weren't for all the people. You've been there? If you haven't had a job yet, you, you, you call me up in like five years and like, yes, these people are killing me. Right? That's all. Like, my job would be so awesome if it weren't for all the people I have to deal with. Why do we do that? Because people are hard, aren't they? They're prickly and they're messy. And they're time consuming. And if you get too close to them, some of them cut you. And even unintentionally, like a porcupine, some of them just stick when you get too close. People aren't just hard. People are, people are maddening. I mean, look, think about the people around you. And you're like, I know if they would just make this choice, it would be so much better for them. If they would quit doing this, it would be so much better for them. If, if I could just make their decisions for them, if I could just, just stop doing that. Don't you realize how you're messing? Like, I'm like, now we're having the 45th conversation about how bad it went with your boyfriend or how bad it went with your girlfriend. Hey, didn't I tell you like, not to be with them? Like, we all know it. Or whatever the thing is. Like we go round and round, circle after circle, spiral after spiral on the same issue. And you look at people and you're like, don't you see it? And you know what they're looking at us saying? Don't you see it? People are maddening and they're time consuming. And they're a mess. And, and you could fix them. People are energy draining people. And people are eternal. People are eternal. And so, as we look at this in the last question, it, it kind of builds off the question that before us. Is Christ precious enough to you? This, this book that shows us this Jesus, are, is he precious enough to you? That you're willing to roll up your sleeves and go towards hard people. That you're willing to roll up your sleeves and occasionally get poked and stabbed and cut by people. That you're willing to roll up your sleeves and press past the immaturity and past the repetitive cycles towards forming Christ in people. Are you willing to go to work? Are you willing to work to love them? Are you willing to work to bless them? Are you willing to work to press Christ into their lives? Are you willing to go to, to, to work to confront them with Christ? Are you willing to go to work to encourage and bless and serve them even though? Because there's no way around this simple fact. Saving grace is working grace. Saving grace is 
working grace. Let's look at it as we jump into the text. So it's going to take suffering. And Paul has got such a framework of life that he rejoices because Jesus is working. The suffering is irrelevant. It's going to take a message, a book that we love and cherish, and it's rich to us. But then Paul unfolds his vision of discipleship. And he's going to give us his message of discipleship. He's going to give us his method of proclaiming discipleship. He's going to give us his goal of discipleship. Don't worry, this isn't four new points. We'll get out at a semi-reasonable time. But I told you, I had a week off. There might be some extras. And then he's going to give us the cost of discipleship. So let's jump in. Him we proclaim. If the word of God is fully known by centering on Jesus, then the message, if we're going to have to make disciples, must center on Jesus. So I want you to think of it like a, a bike wheel would probably be better than a wagon wheel. None of us drive wagons. So if you've got a bicycle, there's a you know, axle that goes through it or whatever it's called, and then there's the center of the wheel that holds it together, and then from there there's all these spokes that attach to the wheel to make it work. Right? What Paul is saying is the center of my wheel is Jesus. And if you want to talk to me about money, I'm going to start with Jesus. And if you want to talk, talk with me about marriage, I'm going to start with Jesus. And if you want me to talk to you about the Christian life, I'm going to start with Jesus. If you want me to talk about prayer, I'm going to start with Jesus. If you want me to talk about how to read your Bible, I'm going to start with Jesus. Him we proclaim. And think about how different that is. Because think how many times we have conversations with our friends and we commiserate with their un biblical views or we commiserate with their frustrations and their angers and their lashing outs and we understand it because we have them too think of how many times we give advice how many times we counsel people how many times we just give them good common sense and how often we do not give them jesus how often we give them morals and not jesus how often we give them laws and not jesus him, Jesus, we proclaim. Like this is one of the things I hate most about the counseling industry. Is I hate that they will use every method to solve your problems, but the one who made your soul and can heal your soul, they will withhold from you. And so they'll give you great advice for your relationships. And they'll give you great advice for boundaries and working out things with your parents. But they won't give you Jesus. And they're Christian counseling. Give them Jesus. And show them how Jesus relates to their pursuit of parents. How Jesus relates to healthy boundaries. How Jesus relates to regulating emotions. How Jesus relates to making relationships work. Him we proclaim. And so step back and look at your life. And look at your conversations with your friends. And, and look at the interactions you have at the coffee shop. And look at your interactions that you have in your home with your kids. Are you giving them all kinds of good advice? Are you giving them all kinds of good principles? And are you giving them all kinds of common sense and all kinds of counseling techniques? And are you giving them all kinds of ways to do everything in life? And giving it to them without Jesus. Sit around the table. The person and work, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ informs everything about our lives. And so let's make sure that He is who we proclaim. That we connect our advice to people to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. To the person and work of Jesus. And so yes, we have something to say about money. And yes, we have something to say about dating. And yes, we have something to say about marriage. And yes, we have something to say about uh, the disciplines of the Christian life. But they tie back to the person of Jesus. And we've got to grow in our skill of Him being our proclamation. And not some other good advice. 
true as it may be. Paul says, my message is him I proclaim. If Jesus is the center of the book, then Jesus is the center of my proclamation. And he did that individually by making disciples out of Titus and Epaphras who who actually planted the church of Colossae, not him. He did that in the lives of people all over the place. And he also did it from big stages with people. I am going to start with Jesus and I'm going to work Jesus out into every area of life. And that's something that if we're going to make disciples, then Jesus has to be central to what we say and how we help people. Him we proclaim. That's the message. Are we tying everything back to Jesus? Second, his method of proclamation. His method of proclamation. Now, yes, he had relationships. Relationships were his delivery system. But how did he proclaim? Two words here. Admonishing everyone. The word for admonish means to confront with a desire to change attitude and action. To challenge in a way that changes attitude and action. To encourage in a way that challenges atti- or that changes attitudes and actions. And so this is, I, I'm going to press Christ on you to see you change. I'm going to press Christ on you for your attitudes to revolve around Christ. I'm going to press Christ on you for your value system and your actions and your applications and your words to come out of Christ. And think about how different that is. Like, step and think, like, how much do you know about the Christian life already? How much do you know about relationships already? How much do you know about the mission of Jesus already? How much do you know about the Bible already? How much do you do with what you know about all those areas? One of the commentators, must have been a Brit, said, admonishing is to tell people to get on with what they already know to do. Get on with what you already know to do. And so you notice how Paul's proclamation is different than ours. It's not, I'm going to just fill you up with facts and fill you up with figures and fill you up with verses. It is, I'm going to press them on you until Jesus' attitudes, actions, and values are your attitudes, actions, and values. I'm admonishing you. I'm going to press on you until you're changed. And so what if that was what you did in your relationships? Like, what is it going to take to, to push Jesus in there in a way that he actually comes out in their relationship, comes out in their money, comes out in their, uh, their reading of the word and prayer? How much, what, what's it going to take to put Jesus in there in a way that changes their values and their, and their actual lives? And so admonishing one another. We want Jesus to be fleshed out in every single area of people's lives around us. Every area, every corner of the heart. And then teaching. It isn't that Paul wants to erase that you need to grow in your love and grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It isn't that Paul wants to erase that you should grow in your knowledge of the word, your knowledge of the Christian life, your knowledge of who God is and what he's done. Yes, you should do that. But don't you dare do that in a way that that, that stops short of changing who you are and just fills your mind up with Bible facts. No more, but only no more to the level that you're willing to do more. Because he who has, more will be given to him. But he who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. That has to do with Jesus warning us how we hear the word. And if you want to be filled up with more of God and filled up with more understanding of God, it doesn't mean you have to do one more study. Keep studying. It means you have to get on with what you already know to do. And so there's a different method in our discipleship than simply dumping information on people. It's a method of pressing on people in a way that will change them. And then what's the goal of discipleship? 
that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Think of how many different goals we may have. Like, we may have goals for people to be like good church members. We may have goals to grow the church. We may have goals to create emotional stability and healing. We may have goals to create a good citizen, a good moral person, uh, somebody that can function in society well. And those are all great things. You should be able to do those things. But what drove Paul? Meaning, what is God's desire for you? What is God's design for you in discipleship? That you become mature in Christ. That Christ is formed in you. That you grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ individually and us together. That's God's goal for you. So what, God, what is God up to you in your life? Forming Christ in you. And what does God want to do through your life into the lives of the people around you? Form Christ in them through you. That's what God's up to. That's the goal of our discipleship. And so I want you to just step back and think through message, method, goal. With your kids, is your goal that they just like don't get into too much trouble, get a good job, get a college degree, and be nice people? Or is your goal that they are, have Christ formed in their lives? What is your goal in your friendships uh, that you've made at college or in your campus ministry? You're like, I want a good relationship. I want us to have a great time together. I want them to be good people. Uh, I want to encourage them. I want Jesus formed in their lives so that Jesus' values and actions and attitudes are what shine through them in their lives. And how am I going to do that? I'm going to press them on them. I'm going to challenge them. I'm going to encourage them. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to show them. And then there's one last note, the who of discipleship. Did you pick that up? Admonish everyone. Teach everyone. Present everyone. Having Christ formed in you is not for like the next level of spirituality. It's not for the next level Christian. It's not for the Christian like, I just want more. It's every Christian. We are called, before we were Christians, we were called followers of the way. A Christian is a follower. A Christian is someone who denies themselves, take up their cross, and follows Jesus. You're not a Christian if you don't follow. And so what is our goal? Is that every single person around us and every single person we know, what is my part in their maturity and what is their part in my maturity? Everyone must be admonished. Everyone must be taught, which means you must admonish and you must teach. Because we want everyone mature, not just a few. We don't like this spiritual group and then everybody else, it's okay as long as you help us pay the bills. That's cool. No. Everyone mature in Christ is our goal, which means every single one of us has to have a part to play. I'm sorry, there is one more point. What's the cost of discipleship? put this on a whiteboard in the room behind us. I couldn't write it well, but somebody could write it out and we could make these cool statements about it. And, and we could get somebody that really knows how to draw, which isn't me. I can barely do stick figures. And they could put a symbol that really represents these principles. And it would be great. We're like, man, that's such a cool, that's a, such a cool way to do it. That's such a cool way to think about it. We should do that. And isn't that what you do? And isn't that what I do? Like we hear these things. Oh, yeah, that'd be cool. That's neat. And then we walk away, and it can stay on the whiteboard or not, but we walk away. And, and nothing happens. Why? Because for it to move from the whiteboard to reality, 
This last verse has to be true. For this I toil. I don't give my hobby time to it. I don't give it when I feel like it. I don't give it like, okay, I'm going to work, but let's make sure we punch out and get some, get some good time, me time in. Toil means to labor to the point of exhaustion. For this I toil. It's not a hobby to me. For this I toil. It's not an extracurricular to me. For this I toil. It's my life, and I will work at it until there's no energy left in me. And here's the cool thing. The grace that saves you is the grace that works. A saving grace is a working grace. Do you see this? But even that isn't me. I struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. So even my laboring, sweating, can't give in any more energy that I give to this cause. It's just God's grace infusing me with the energy to continue to struggle. And if we're going to see a vision of Jesus' work in people's lives and a vision of Jesus' work in the lives of our brothers and sisters around us, there will not be a substitute. There will not be a shortcut to us going to work. And so you have to answer the question, am I willing to work to the point of exhaustion for this to be a reality? There'll be a price where we pay it. There's a word that will be threatened where we cling to it and where we have it in filling our heart. And all that's going to be really irrelevant if like, yeah, that's good, but man, I'm, I'm tired. I want to keep resting. Do you know what those church people did? Do you know what those church people said? Do you know what that lost person did to you? It's too much work. And if we love our comfort more than we love eternal soul, it will never happen. If we love our rest and ourselves more than we love eternal souls, it will never happen. And I don't say that to guilt you because it is God's grace that will energize you to do it. But it's a question you have to answer. Am I willing to work? A couple practical things as we... As we wrap up here, I want you to ask and answer these three questions before the Lord. Whatever kind of time you need to set set aside to do that, but you just prayerfully before the Lord, you put these three questions out. And you have a conversation with the Lord about them, not me. There is no condemnation in Christ. It's not a guilt-ridden conversation. It's a God. I just want to look at my heart as we start a new year. And I I just want to see, God, where I am on these things. And so... Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to love this book, even when others don't? And are you willing to work? Second, check your message, method, and goal. In what ways are you tying everything back to Jesus for your kids, for your, for your spouse, for your friends, for the people in your campus ministry, Sunday school, church, whatever? In what ways are you tying them back to Jesus? And in what ways are you tying them to just good advice in some other form? What are some of the ways that you um, have drifted to moralism or common sense? What are, what, what are the ways you aim for transformation in people's lives? And what ways are you just kind of studying and growing in knowledge only? So what are the ways are you aiming for transformation versus what are some of the ways maybe you're just building up studies? What are some ways your goal is on target with seeing Christ formed in people? And what are some way your, ways your goals may have slipped out to something good but not best, not God's? Check your message, method, and goals. And then lastly, refresh relationships to God, others, and the lost. What's one, two, or three people around you that you see on a regular basis that do not know Jesus? 
How could you intentionally connect to them, serve them, bless them? What might it cost you? Will you do it? Those are the four questions we've asked for about a month now. I want to keep pressing on you. And then why don't you make this the year where you decide, I'm going to go past the surface. I'm going to quit hearing about this microgroup thing. And I'm going to actually walk into relationships where I'm going to let people see me, maybe for the first time. And I'm going to seek for Jesus to be the driving uh, desire of my heart. And how do I press him on people so that they reflect him? And I'm going to open my life up to let somebody else see where Jesus is needed and press him on me. Maybe for the first time. Open yourself up to new relationships to God that's been reinvigorated. To a new relationship with others where you start walking towards them. And a new relationship with the lost where you quit where you see the cost and you quit making the excuses and you intentionally walk to that one, two, or three people. It's been a nation in turmoil. We have people all around us with rising anger, rising confusion, rising fear. That's your backdrop of ministry. And we have the only hope that they will ever have in life and death. Now is not the time to be afraid. Now is not the time to retreat. Now is not the time to be faint-hearted and fearful. Now is not the time to be lazy and overly rested. Now is the time to be bold in our God. Now is the time to be sacrificial with our lives. Now is the time to show and share no matter the cost. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we know that we could never do these three questions. And we know that Jesus has saved us, declared us righteous, lives within us, and the life that we now live is lived by faith in the Son of God. And so, Father, I pray that there would not be condemnation upon our heads. There would be the sweet voice of your Son calling us to more this year, calling us to more of himself and more of sharing him with the world. God, your promise of your Son being with us comes with the Great Commission. And we'll find more of you. God, help us know we'll find more of you when we're on mission than when we're sitting down. There'll be more grace. There'll be more energy. There'll be more life. There'll be more transformation. God, help us to know that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin and your separation from God. But he didn't stop there. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he sent his Spirit to show you that through the work of Jesus, dying for your sins and rising again, you can be adopted into the family of God. You can be declared righteous. Not because of your work, not because of you answer these three questions, but because of the work of Jesus. Have you ever turned from your sin and put your faith The weight of your life in Jesus, not religion, Jesus. Have you done that? Come, we can pray together or you can fill out the white sheet in your bulletin and and we will get with you to answer the questions uh, that you're wrestling through to get there. But maybe for the rest of us, God's stirring in your heart something about cost, something about sacrifice, something about suffering. Maybe he's stirring in our heart something about the way way we've taken the book into our heart or the way we've believed the book. Maybe stirring something in you about getting back to work. Man, I feel really lazy after the last year. Just that icky feeling. I can't get out of this routine of laziness. I can't get back 
where I was before the pandemic. I just took it out of gear. Maybe you feel that way. And you want to pray and ask God to put it back in gear for his grace to energize you again. Or maybe there's a face that burns in your heart when we talk about making a difference in other people's lives. And that's who you want to pray for. We're going to stand and sing. You can pray and respond where you are, 